TED Audio Collective. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. (laughs) That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. (laughs) I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. listening to HBS After Hours. I'm here tonight with Mihir and Felix. How are you guys doing tonight? Good. Yeah. Good to be here. Here at HBS, we are nearing the end of the school year. Felix, you're so in touch with our MBA students, the ones that are about to graduate. What's the vibe? The vibe is amazing. So, you know, you go back maybe three, four weeks, everybody's nervous. What's the summer internship that I'm going to get? What's the permanent job that I will take after graduation? These are the sweetest moments in the program when people know what they're going to do. And it's lots of excitement, lots of enthusiasm. It's a really nice period. I'm always surprised by how like nostalgia sets in. Sometime, yes. like, you so know, quickly, four weeks right? before graduation, everyone's like, oh, my God, you know, I have to leave. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's it's a fantastic thing. It's incredible how much bonding takes place in such a short period of time. I mean, it's only two years, but after two years, they just seem devastated to be leaving yeah. each other. It's really something. And, and when you hear a two-year MBA and then your individual experience here is, oh, my God, this went by two minutes of your life. And uh, so that's, I think. And then you get a crush of students coming to see you in your office before they graduate. And it's shocking to me every year how many of them said, if I could just do one more year. Yeah. And I'm thinking, <laughs> it's time to go. Yeah. <laughs> go back to the real world. Exactly. <laughs> okay. So, Mihir, you brought something you want to talk about today? Yeah. I didn't think we were doing enough controversial things. Okay. So I thought we could do the gender pay gap and solve it. Oh, okay. Yeah, two minutes. Yeah, it should take us a couple minutes. Yeah, Yeah, I think that'd be great. (laughs) Terrific. All right. I also brought a topic I want us to talk about. Um, It has to do with retail medicine, and I'll explain what that term means. So, all right, let's get going then. So, Mihir, why don't you get us started? Yeah, so, I mean, you know, the gender pay gap, I think, is just an incredibly interesting phenomenon, and it bridges social concerns as well. What we've seen recently is a couple of things. One, some really innovative measures to try to address it in the UK and Iceland. So the UK has just really, I think, launched one of the most aggressive things, which they're making data transparent. And they're really relying on transparency. So there has a website where you can see by firm what wage gaps are between men and women. And it's crude. But it's it's required. It's required. And it's not for larger, for larger, for larger entities. Yeah. So sorry, larger yeah. entities. Yeah. Yeah. It's not tenure adjusted. It's not, you know, it's not all the things you'd want to do in a regression, but it's interesting. 
And there's some big numbers. You know, I think Goldman's number came out to be very large. 50% 50 less. 50% plus or something like that. Shocking. But now, of course, that can be about heterogeneity in titles. Iceland has gone further. And for firms larger than 25, uh, they've mandated you have to show that you are paying women, you know, more equally. So I'm curious what your thoughts are about those two specific measures. And then to think more broadly about what we should be doing about the gender pay gap. What do you make of transparency, which is the UK version? And what do you make of mandating, which is, I think, the Iceland version? Um, and what do you think about what we're doing in the US? And what are we doing in the US? Well, that's, <laughs> that's a great question. <laughs> we're muddling along. Yeah. Um, so, Felix, what do, you, what do you think? When I think about the issue, I would often start thinking, so what's the gold standard? Like, what do I really want to see? In the end, what I really want to see is that people get paid very close to their levels of productivity. Uh, And one reason why I think this is really important is uh, if we have to pay them more as a result of regulation, then firms are going to be unlikely to hire whoever benefits from being overpaid. Uh, If we pay them less, uh, people don't make the kinds of investments in their careers that they should be making in order to uh, be productive for uh, the firm that they're working for, but but society as a whole. And so uh, thinking about this gold standard, I'm actually much more comfortable with Iceland than Mm -hmm. with with the UK measure. Because what Iceland basically has done is that you need payroll certification. And that means someone who's trained, someone who actually understands how do, I, how do I create comparables across genders, but you can also imagine across, across age groups, across foreigners and, and, people, and people who live in Iceland, uh, whatever, whatever fairness measure seems, seems important at any point in time, there are skilled people who come out and will tell you, okay, so you know this firm is doing a good job. And then the certification, you have the certification for three years. My big concern with the UK is that we get these quite shocking numbers. Oh my God, women are underpaid by 50% if you work at Goldman Sachs. That has to be a reflection of women and men at Goldman do very different things in the firm. And then you can think about ways in which this is helpful. So for instance, if uh, Goldman has fewer female top executives, one way to improve on the statistic is, oh, now you're going out and you're hiring talented women who could serve as top executives. But it's a it's a measure and and sort of a source of reputational concerns that I think in in many ways fall short of just recognizing that there are lots of differences why people are not as some people are not as productive as others, and there should be differences in how much they get paid. So I guess I would agree with you, Felix. I mean, first of all, let me say anything to move us in a better direction, I'm in favor of. So even the most incremental thing, I'm in favor of. Is it sufficient? Not even close. Neither one of these. Neither one, I think, is sufficient. And I think they sort of operate through this notion of shame, particularly the UK one. The UK one, for sure. Yeah, I think they're underestimating how shameless companies can be on this dimension when they have multiple ways to explain it away, right? So to your point, Felix, is in many ways a reflection of the fact that there are just fewer women in senior positions in in a lot of these firms. So let me give you two counters on this, right? First off, the UK measure has some things to say for it, which is you're right in a snapshot way, right? But this data is going to exist longitudinally. And if you don't close that gap, I think that's going to be a problem. And you give the employer more degrees of freedom about the way they do it. 
And I think that's helpful. I agree. It's not as fast as you want it to be. And it's not as current as we'd want it to be. But my instinct is the soft touches. If you go too hard touch on this, you might get backlash in a way that's not great. Um, I don't know. So my instinct is that the transparency way is the way to go. Look, if the U.S. were to do what the U.K. is doing, I would be in favor of that. Let me just be clear. That would be a, a step in the right direction. Is it sufficient? Absolutely not. If you think about all of the different things that can be done, so for example, forbidding asking about salary history, creating flexible work schedules, creating more generous leave policies. I mean, there's so many things that can move us in the right direction. But at the end of the day, I think until companies develop the will to recruit women into senior positions with much more energy, we're just not going to see movement on this. So every company out there say, oh, we really try to recruit senior women, but we just can't. There's a dearth of senior women. It's just not true that they really try. Because if they really tried, what you would see is that even though there are very few women at the most senior positions, they would get so much more highly compensated because the market rate for these few people would just skyrocket. If you're a qualified woman, you would be getting inundated with offers and people would be bidding for your services. And so what you would see is that there would be a small cadre of women that would be in many ways dramatically overpaid as a result of market demand, which would then create theoretically a lot more incentive for women to begin to chase these positions. You don't see that dynamic. And the reason is, I think the effort that a lot of professional firms go to to recruit senior women is a really half-hearted, go-through-the-motions sort of effort. I don't either think the UK thing is so sufficient. And you're absolutely right, which is these highly capable women, we should see wages skyrocketing. And they're not, which is a problem for the reason you said. So say we paint a future in which we roughly have gender balance across all the functions and, and seniority in the firm. I think what that presumes is that people's lives and people's plans are quite similar across the genders. What I find particularly interesting about the, the research that we have from you know the sources of pay differences is that uh, so much depends on when families decide to have their kids. Yes. Uh, so you have kids relatively early on and there's minimal impact on, on pay differences. You have kids late, which is typically true for highly qualified people, you know, have a, a good chunk of their professional careers behind them by the time they have kids. You don't see a pay difference, but where it really makes a dramatic difference and, and it remains a difference over time is you have, if you have your kids roughly between 25 and 35. And the context in which I'm nervous about this idea that we should have you know, roughly the same number of women, roughly the same number of men in each of these positions is I don't want to live in a world where you can't really make these choices. Or if people make these choices, you put enormous pressure on companies to then somehow have a recruiting policy that gets us roughly to parity. If that's what people choose to do. I would love to live in an economy where people get to do this and where if people choose to do this, there isn't an enormous amount of pressure for firms to make up for these choices. So believe it or not, Felix, I agree with you. (laughs) (laughs) No, I, I do agree with you. So in a perfect world, where we had perfect equilibrium, I don't know if the natural equilibrium would be 50 50 and to impose it on companies, I think doesn't necessarily make sense. 
But here's the thing. We don't know what the natural equilibrium is. We don't. So right now, it's distorted because the incentives are so perverse. So if you're a woman and you take time out to have kids, your incentives to go back to work are really deflated as a result of all of these different market dynamics. So all I'm saying is companies should be doing whatever they can to create environments that are maximally attractive to everyone, where everyone can thrive equally. And I don't believe that's happening right now. And I think in particular, it penalizes women. Um, And until we get to that point, we're not going to know what the natural equilibrium is. Let me give you my, what will sound like a retrograde idea, because I'm interested in your reactions to it, which is, and this is going to be so self-aggrandizing. Part of me feels like the answer is paternity leave. You know, if you could force men to take six months, I know this is a weird policy, but certainly you can make it more easy and socially less associated with less stigma. And I know that sounds like, well, why is it that the men need a break? I understand that. But in a way, you're putting them on a little bit more of a common footing, that you're out of the workforce and you have to kind of bear the burden in the household in a different way. But it's not the six months. It's being out for two years. Yeah, you're right. But I feel like at least that would help a little bit because I think it's it, there's this general equilibrium problem that in a way men are the answer to, which is they have to do things differently in order to allow women to do things differently. You know, they have to pick up the slack. They have to do certain things. They have to bear certain burdens. And only when that happens and when that changes is it conceivable that other things will change. I find your argument really interesting. And the analogy that came to mind is is study abroad. You know how it's not really like getting to know the world, but even just that tiny bit of experience that things can be radically different, uh, somehow it changes people. Mm-hmm. It, changes, it changes people's mindsets. So I agree that the real long-term wage impact you're not going to see if you force, if you force fathers to be at home for six months. But I think it's one of these things where you don't really know, do you have a preference for being at home? Like, well, I, don't, I don't really know because yeah. uh, I never did. Oh, yeah, it would be really great to be at home. But I don't really know because sure. I've never really done it. And so sure. so just as a, as a tool to discover preferences and then maybe have a little bit more understanding what it is to have been away for a little while. I'm glad that the two men on the, the, two, men on the, show have, <laughs> the two men on the show have decided that men need more time. <laughs> That's the real answer. Thanks, guys. <laughs> So with our remaining time, guys, I want to ask you about retail medicine. And by retail medicine, I mean it's increasingly possible to get a range of medical care in a retail setting. So the most prominent manifestation of this is where I live. There are probably three or four urgent care clinics that you can just walk into and you get care for a whole bunch of things. If you look closely, what you'll see is retailers are now getting into the game as well, mass merchandise retailers. So CVS, Walmart, sometimes in partnership with health insurance providers, but clearly moving to this vision where one day you can just in a retail environment and be seen, usually not by a doctor, by a nurse practitioner or a physician's assistant for a whole range of things, ranging from if you have a fever, if you've hurt yourself, you're feeling dizzy, whatever it is. The backdrop for this is the fact that in this country, the front line of medical care has always been primary care physicians and their numbers are in decline. And so there are fewer and fewer primary care physicians out there to see you first and it's harder to get an appointment. And so now what you're seeing is the emergence of this new front line. My question is, if you had a loved one 
that was not feeling well, maybe fever, vomiting, something, would you say, hey, we're going to go to the Walmart and get you checked out? So can I answer for myself before before I'm thinking about the loved one? (laughs) I would totally do this. And I think my intuition is sort of guided by two kinds of experiences. I find when I go to different primary care physicians that I've experienced over my lifetime, I find there are enormous differences in the quality of care that I get. Some of them seem to be really fantastic, fabulous, and, you know, others, you're not so sure how much they actually contributed. And in many settings, I find that nurse practitioners really are doing the bulk of the work. You know, I'm in there for Mm -hmm. 20 minutes, and then I get to shake the hand of the real person who's responsible for my care. And like, it doesn't, it's not obvious what it adds. And so I think it's one of these where so much of the variation is just person to person. And I would expect the same in a retail setting. But this is one of those cases where how you experience the care might not be a reflection of the quality of the care. So your nurse practitioner, he or she might make you feel great and give you a lot of attention and make you feel like you're getting great quality care, but you don't actually know. Meanwhile, you might have a really impatient, rude, primary care physician that doesn't make you feel like you're getting great care, but is actually paying attention to some things and is less likely to miss some stuff that a nurse practitioner might. So, I mean, in situations where you don't feel well, I think my experience is when you talk to the nurse practitioner and you ask, oh, what's wrong? What should I do? What do you think it is? And then when you hear the verdict from the person who has an extra 500 years of training, there isn't a big difference. Yeah. Well, I mean, so I have to say we all bring our own baggage. And in this case, you know, I married into a medical family. And so I think we fetishize that 500 years (laughs) <laughs> of experience. And and the reason why, of course, is because we're preoccupied with the low probability events, right? So this is all about uh, low probability events, I think. So that when you go in with the fever, it's not a fever. It's like some bad problem you have that it's, this is just the tip of the iceberg of that problem. And you, you worry that that nurse practitioner may consider it something that's more like an average experience as opposed to the low probability event. And in a way, what doctors do in part is uh, certainly specialists, is they think about low probability events. And part of what we pay for is that. And so I think that's a little bit of my inclination. But I think the, the more so general- you wouldn't go. I think I'd have a hard time. I think um, the more general issue though, I think is, what I think is really interesting is these clinics, but then there's also this thing that's going on with CVS and Aetna and Walmart and yeah, Humana. Yeah. And that is, I think, just much in some sense more transformative. Like if somebody had told you, you know, 10 years ago, CVS was going to buy it now. And uh, there's going to be like medical (laughs) clinics and CVS. You just, your mind would explode. And there, I think what's happening is several things. I don't know entirely. I'd be interested to know what your perspective is, but I think these, uh, you know, these PBMs that are embedded, Mm -hmm. these are embedded in CVS and they're embedded in Express Scripts. They're like incredibly profitable like crazy profitable because they are pharmacy benefits managers you're thinking exactly yeah Yeah. and they and they obscure price Mm -hmm. discovery and they they have Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. a lot of profits locked up in them and my understanding is that the insurers are interested in that business because that's like where the money is and so they're setting up their own pbms and then on top of that 
you know, the CVS answer, I think, is, well, we, we'll, we'll be with Aetna, and then we'll also give you the touch points so that you kind of come in our mm-hmm. door for actual medical care. So it just feels like a whole ton of integration. And then, then I think that gets interesting from a system-wide perspective. I agree with you, but here's the thing. So I'm one of these people that complains all the time about the inefficiency in our healthcare system. And so when I put my business hat on and I look at the CVS Aetna thing, I, I actually think it's intriguing for all the reasons that you describe. And so much depends on the execution, but you can imagine some real efficiencies coming out of this. And so you would think I'd be super excited about it, but what it's going to mean in everyday terms is that that frontline, that point of triage, because that's really what it is, that front end is going to change. And I'm surprised by how nervous that makes me. So let me give you another example. I think that is that to me is interesting to think about. So this year, big flu epidemic, right? So, you know, you read in the paper, mm, you have to be careful, it could be dangerous, you don't quite know, and so on and so on. Uh, I have the flu. Uh, what does it mean for me to go to my primary care physician? I have to make an appointment. It's yeah. during off. It's during yeah. the day. It's like inconvenient in, in 15 different ways. And so in the end, you know, I survived somehow and I didn't see anyone. Yeah. Uh, if I had a retail clinic just around the corner, I would have swung by. I would have said, this is now day three. I still have high fever. Is that normal? Is that what you're seeing? Right now, because the primary care physician setup that I typically have is a complicated one. And so I don't, I don't go. And, and so in a way, if I, if I was in charge of building this business for CVS, I think building on the intuition, I would make sure I would have a first class referral system that the people in the retail clinic are super clear about when it is that they don't know. And that they make the referral at that point in time. And I think what's going to end up happening here is there's convenience issues and there's trust issues. And they're going to be able to do the convenience issues. I don't know if they want to play the trust game. I think it may be a more expensive game. The other thing I'll say is this also just strikes me as so emblematic of what's happening in all kinds of parts of society, but particularly in healthcare, right? So the other thing is concierge medicine. So the other retail aspect that's going on here is... Young me, don't worry. You're going to like have your personal concierge doctor that's retail in its own way. And, you know, um, the rest of us are going to be schlepping over to CVS. That's a side point, but it, it strikes me as representative of something more general. I don't think it's a side point at all. It feels like we're at this moment where the idea of fixing our healthcare system from the ground up just seems like an impossible, impossible thing. So instead, what you see is solutions popping up, potential solutions around the edges of the thing. And so I think this is one manifestation. I think concierge medicine is another. But what you're going to get is even further fragmentation of our healthcare system and further sort of self-selection into different different paths. And I think think there are going to be some folks just so much better served by some of the new things that are emerging than others. And then at the retail end, when, when you think about the trust issues right now, you don't really have a personal relationship with anyone Mm. at CVS. So that is, to me, one of the most fascinating management questions around this move. Do you want to be that way? Where, you know, you never know who's there. You never know who's going to take your time. Completely transactional. Completely transactional. Or do you use this 
as a way to then say, no, actually, there is someone you have a relationship with. And this person is also going to look over your shoulder, what food you buy, and, and so on, and so on. So it becomes like a total wellness thing or something yeah, like that. Yeah, so where they really manage much of the sort of non-medical, non-emergency care in a way that maybe because it is so... When you think about how many wellness issues are really hospital issues, not, not that many. The really dramatic ones. And everything else, I think, is a space where we could use lots of investment. But I can't imagine you're going to end up with personal relationships with your CVS representative. I mean, that's going to Why be not? expensive as hell to do that at scale. So, I mean, you don't have a personal relationship when you go into the Genius Bar. You don't have a personal. That is a, that's a very high bar. In a retail environment, <laughs> right? Maybe you have very different ideas of what it means to be personal. It's personal okay. the way the bartender can sometimes be personal. Right. So my conclusion from this conversation is that <laughs> they can go in either one of two ways. One, we end up with an increasingly fragmented front end of our healthcare system where anybody with means is going to concierge care and everybody else gets shunted to these hugely transactional... Don't say shunted. <laughs> okay. Felix or, wants to go there. Or we end up with Felix's vision <laughs> of the neighborhood nurse practitioner or physician's assistant who gets deeply involved into the day-to-day, -day, your day-to-day -day wellness. I like my vision. Well, okay. So we'll have to see. <laughs> Okay, so did you guys bring in picks today? Yes, absolutely. Every, yeah. every, yes. every week. Absolutely. Every week. All right. Yeah. Like my favorite part. Yeah. I know. Okay. Felix, what's your pick tonight? So one of my uh, favorite travel destinations is Turkey and uh, Istanbul. Istanbul in particular, I just think it's such an interesting, interesting place. Deeply problematic, but also historical, super interesting. And, and so, challenging to navigate, Mahir. So you would... Maybe... <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I forgot. Exactly. Yeah, That's what I'm yeah, looking yes. for. Alleyways. Yeah, alleyways. So yeah. Sorry to disappoint. They have five-star hotels and everything <laughs> oh you could possibly want. I never said I didn't want to stay in a five-star oh, hotel. Okay, just to be okay, clear. Okay. <laughs> just got to be a little complicated. But so I'm, I'm reading a book called Snow uh, by uh, this writer called Pamuk. And the bulk of the book takes place in this small, small, small town all the way on the, on the east side. And the town has this, has this interesting history where sometimes it's part of Turkey and sometimes it's part of Azerbaijan. And you really, you have this sense of just how fluid history is in a way. And, and it's, the, the setting is one in which uh, Islamist uh, ideology becomes more important in this town and that creates a friction between the, the, the people who are not so religious and everyone who seems to getting more religious over time. So, so if you, it was fascinating to me when I think Turkey, I, I think Istanbul and I mm -hmm. think what is really, you know, a much more, the much more westernized sure. part of Turkey. And then you get this sense of a, of a sweeping history and a, and a really fun and interesting story on top of that. That mm. is, oh my God, this is like a, this is like a different universe. And we mm. sometimes see it show up in Turkish politics in really interesting ways. So quickly, can I ask a question? So do the autocratic policies in Turkey make you less willing to go? No. It doesn't influence your tourism decisions? So my 
my general intuition about I sometimes get it because I often go to China. I sometimes yeah. get asked, you know, now is Xi Jinping? Are you? Yeah. And so it's versions of that question. And, and my sense is engagement with the outside world is all the more important if you have the tendencies that you have in Turkey, Eastern Europe, China, lots of lots of places now. Interesting. All right. Mihir. Yes. So um, I have a book. Uh, it's called Kids These Days. It's by Malcolm Harris. And it's actually a book about millennials, of which I know nothing. <laughs> um, <laughs> Other than you spend most of your well, teaching days with. <laughs> with. And that's precisely why I know I know nothing. Uh, so it's a really interesting book. It's the first full-throated defense of the millennial generation against all the stereotypes that I've heard. He basically makes the argument that the behaviors that we non-millennials might find particularly uh, objectionable are actually the outcome of a whole set of things that have happened to that generation. In particular, the, one of the core things about his argument that I find really interesting is he basically makes the point that this is the first generation which views themselves as investments and that the language of investments is how they think about their development and so that leads them to think about their human capital in a different way. That leads them to think about their jobs in a different way. And it's all about yourself as an investment. So give an example. Like, what's an example that stuck with you? Think about how much time gets spent with these kids. And think about what that does to a kid's mentality as they grow up. This is the burden of being paid attention to as a child. <laughs> No, yeah, in a no, way. I'm, I'm being serious. Yeah. Anyway, so just in terms of understanding millennials, it's a short book. I think it's really, it's really fascinating. All right. So my recommendation this week is a product. So the older I get, the more I find myself trying to hack my sleep. You just do different things to try to ensure that you get good sleep. So I recently had an opportunity to try a gravity blanket. Have you heard of this? I have no. I, I don't know what, what it is. is. Okay, a gravity blanket is essentially a really, really heavy blanket. You can get them in different weights. You can get a 15-pounder, a 20-pounder. I think you can oh even God, get so a 25-pounder. I had read about them, and I had heard that they're remarkably effective for certain kinds of people who have trouble sleeping and also for children who have trouble settling down. Okay. So I had an opportunity to try one, and I think I had the best sleep of my life. I think I slept for 10 hours. It's like being back in the womb. It's like being... First of all, wow, they're they're good. really heavy to the point where it's it's hard to move, but your nervous system just centers itself. It's crazy, huh. you guys. Wow. Is it claustrophobic? It it wasn't for me. Honestly, I fell asleep so quickly and so deeply that I don't remember much else than that. But it's it's such an awesome. It's a fascinating product. Do you have a name you want to recommend or a product specifically? It's, it's called a gravity blanket. I'm sure there are other brands out there, but oh, wow. the one I tried was the gravity blanket. There Fabulous. you go. Okay. Thank you. Thank <laughs> All right. you. Thanks for listening, everyone. This is HBS After Hours. You guys got to try that. I got to try that. That's a real, really? that's a great you suggestion. Try that. You tried one that? night? Or you so I was at this You're growing a business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. 
Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Support for the show comes from Brooks Running. I'm so excited because I have been a runner, gosh, my entire adult life. And for as long as I can remember, I have run with Brooks Running Shoes. Now I'm running with a pair of Ghost 16s from Brooks. Incredibly lightweight shoes that have really soft cushioning. It feels just right when I'm hitting my running trail that's just out behind my house. You now can take your daily run in the better than ever Ghost 16. You can visit brooksrunning.com to learn more. 